The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. This is Toby Manhai with a special one-off bonus episode of Gone By Lunchtime. It's just a few days now until Auckland will have its third super city mayor. The man who is vacating the office and the chains is Phil Goff, who is also bringing to an end a political career that spans four decades. He came in to talk about all that, um, and we discussed... We discussed a lot. We covered everything from his early days as an activist, his thesis, uh, you'll be pleased to know. We also then talked about his um, uh, parliamentary career, which included being at the table during that incredible fourth Labour government um, with uh, David Longy and Roger Douglas in the room, then with Helen Clark. Um, and, of course, his time as the opposition leader. You remember the show-me-the-money moment? And on beyond that through to his two terms as Auckland's mayor. It's a pretty interesting chat. I enjoyed it. Thanks to spin-off members. Thanks to the Public Interest Journalism Fund for supporting our local election coverage. Thanks to Ethan Jupe for producing this episode. We'll be back with a regular uh, triumvirate chat soon. Mayor Phil Goff, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. I think this might be my very last interview as mayor. Uh, a farewell to it. Uh, it is, and it has been a, a bit like that. Um, it's kind of nice to have the chance to uh, to do a valedictory. Uh, I know the first time I went out of Parliament, um, the only time I lost my electorate seat was in 1990, mm. and you never have the chance to uh, to, to say goodbye, uh, to say how you feel about things. So um, I've been a bit lucky. Um, I've been able to give a valedictory in Parliament and uh, kind of do the same thing uh, for the mayoralty. Um, but uh, I've, en- I've enjoyed the mayoralty. It's been a privilege to do it, uh, but it certainly has its, its frustrations. I'm just going to, um, bef- b- before you go into that stump speech... Does it feel a bit like going to your own funeral doing all these, <laughs> all these speeches? Yeah, there's a guy I knew that decided he was—he uh, had terminal cancer and he decided that bugger waiting for, for the funeral, he wasn't going to hear anything anybody said at his own funeral. So he'd have his funeral a couple of weeks before he died, mm. which, you know, when you think about it, is quite a logical thing to do. You're going to say anything about it, say it while I'm here. You know, I could either enjoy it or reject it. But uh, And I guess going around doing all these interviews, you probably do a little bit of that autopilot thing that you, of course, have to do as a politician over, what, is it four decades? You sometimes yeah, it, start delivering the same lines and words in the same order? Yeah, I found it a little bit liberating because I'm I'm not going back to elected office at all, mm. um, but there's still, you know, 
the self-imposed constraints that you have after a lifetime in politics, um, knowing that, you know, you say something loose and it can be misunderstood, misreported, or you can just stuff it up. <laughs> it so must uh, be, I'll try not to do that. It must you. be better than, than doing the debates, though. I mean, it is, it's an amazing yeah. thing. It kind of feels like there have been seven or 800 debates this time. Every time there are all these debates. It's, it's yeah. a fascinating, fascinating process. Uh, I did 43 candidate debates with John Tamahiri, and uh-huh. I swear that, you know, halfway through, if he had f- dropped dead with a heart attack, I could have finished his speech for him, <laughs> word for word, and, then, and he could have done likewise for me. Yeah, um, yeah I, I've got to say... Uh, the, those campaign meetings, um, the debates are quite good actually in a in a studio like this. So yeah. you can you can have a free flowing debate, but the speeches in front of audiences that might be smallish, you know, twenty or thirty, or might be largest, uh, two or three hundred. But generally, with your campaign trail, uh, the, the people that turn up at campaign meetings are people that have already made their mind up. Yeah. You very rarely have somebody that comes along. I want to hear both candidates and then make my, my my own decision. Mostly they are people that are already decided as his supporters or my supporters. And you spend many, many nights um, uh, probably not having a huge impact, but I always felt obliged to go because your responsibility as a politician is to be accountable, responsive, and to turn up when you're invited. So uh, the only one I missed, I think, was uh, when my, my sister-in-law passed away and I was at a funeral. But the, it, it was a long grind. In... In parliamentary politics, in your electorate, maybe you'll have two or three debates with the yeah. other candidates, but certainly not 43. Have you been paying much attention to, to this one, or have you been enjoying doing um, something else? I've, I've followed it a bit, hmm. um, but um, how do I put that? I don't think going along and, and to those meetings is that I'm going to learn something that I didn't know, and what I am going to find is a, a huge sense of frustration that I'd want to interrupt and say, look, that's not correct. This is what happened. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm, We've got a question at the back yeah, from yeah. the man with white hair. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm going to find that after next Saturday, um, you know, trying to avoid commenting on what a new mayor and a new council is doing. I, I really don't want to be, you know, Sam the Eagle or Oscar the Grouch on the sidelines yeah, um, yeah. saying, you know, in my day, this is what we used to do. I do recall a certain councillor that speaks sometimes when I was mayor and I thought, oh. What was that councillor's name? Uh, I, I think I'll give her the benefit of privacy over that. Um, <laughs> but but uh, you could you could make an intelligent guess. I, look, you know, when you're out of it, you're out of it. And unless there's something, you know, where I think my integrity is being attacked, um, I'm going to try to just let the, the new mayor and council get on and do the best job they can. That's, uh, you know, uh, former prime ministers, former mayors, probably uh, better to remain silent than to be in, uh, trying to contribute from the sidelines. When does it formally happen? Is it the, the swearing in, the point at which you stop? Yeah. Or, is it, or is it, I mean, I guess once there's a mayor elect, yeah, then effectively, basically you're, you're Yeah, effectively on, on Saturday afternoon, evening, there'll be a new mayor elected. And at that point, um, I'm not doing any public functions or, or making any public comments. Constitutionally, I'm still mayor till the following Friday when the special votes have been counted and the final uh, declaration uh-huh. is made. Uh, and then, of course, there's another couple of weeks and there's the inauguration. So if we, go into, if we go into lockdown, the fourth lockdown, then you'll be... You uh, to, yeah, you look, if, if, if constitutionally I had to do something, I would. But for all intents and purposes, the person that, that is elected as mayor on Saturday um, should, be the, should be the mayor. 
Um, I took over on the, I turned up at, uh, you know, uh, seven o'clock on the Monday after the, the Saturday election, mm. and I assumed the role as mayor at that point. And that was, that was six years ago now, and so you've, you've, you've been there for a while. Just looking, just, just bringing it back to now, we're talking on the Tuesday ahead of uh, the final day votes close on Saturday at noon, and at the moment the, the voting is tracking roughly the same as last time. Last time yeah. there was there was there was thirty four thirty five point three thirty five point two yeah. seven I think turnout. This time the polls are suggesting, the polls are suggesting that the winner could come in with with twenty seven or twenty eight percent potentially. And if you do the numbers on that, if you, so that, that yeah. if the turnout's the same, then, then that would be less than ten percent of eligible voters electing a mayor, yeah. which is. If you'll forgive me using the technical term, a bit fucked, isn't it? <laughs> it is a technical term. Um, yeah, it, it's sad. Look, um, I I think in both of my elections, I got around 50% of the, the vote that was cast, which is much less than that if your, your turnout's only between 35 and 40%. Mm. But the fact of the matter is um, everybody has the opportunity to vote. So uh, those that do vote get to have the say. I'm I'm kind of sad. I'm you know I'm I'm a baby boomer, so I think a bit about my parents' generation and the fact that you know, uh, you know one of my brother one of my dad's brothers never came home and they were fighting for something which, you know, broadly was freedom and democracy, the right to have your say and to determine your government, and it is disappointing that people don't take up that right. Now, do we just blame the individuals that don't vote, or do we say? Well, do we do we try to find a new system that will encourage people to be more active participants? Mm. And you know, you'd like to do the latter, but it's it's not absolutely clear how you do that. Uh, one of the things that you know, people say, well, why is the turnout low? You know, it's eighty percent or seventy eight percent for central government. And my answer would be, the public are, are, are reasonably smart. They know that the critical decisions for this country are made at a central government level. The central government takes in 93% of all public uh, revenue from, mm. you know, taxes or rates. And so they hold the purse strings and therefore they are important in the decisions. Now, I think that's not an entirely accurate analysis because we can make a difference at local government. We do place make, we do set our priorities, you know, either you think that uh, climate change is real and we really desperately have to act to prevent it, or you don't and you'll just let it slide and say somebody else can do that. Uh, you, you do need to strive for a more inclusive society or a more sustainable society. Um, so I, I think local government is really important, but if you want local government to be more visibly important, two things have got to happen. One, you've got to have some devolution of funding to local government, particularly with Auckland. It's, for God's sake, it's a third of the country's population. It's 40% of the GDP of the, the country, yet we don't have a fundamentally different funding mechanism from a smaller district council. And then secondly, um, I think you've got to have more media attention. Um, most of what we do at a council level, uh, there's a couple of people that might turn up at a, a council meeting where we're, you know, online, um, but we don't get the same coverage. The mayor gets a bit of coverage, mm. but for most of the councillors, most of the local boards, they're pretty anonymous. And for people to go out and vote, they need to know who they're voting for. And if they think, oh, there's that list of people, I really don't know them. I'd rather not vote than vote for somebody I don't know mm. uh, because they might turn out to be terrible. So, yeah, we we have to start to think how we can reimagine 
local and maybe overall democratic politics because the long-term trend across the world is that fewer and fewer people are voting. And yet, theoretically at least, no, actually in practice, we, we should be better informed than ever. I can, I can pick up my phone and I can find out whatever information I have from that little computer in my pocket. Whereas once upon a time, I'd have to go away. I remember writing a thesis where I got books on international interloan. <laughs> it took two months for them to yeah, arrive. Yeah. So people are, uh, are capable of being better informed now, but we still don't have the level of participation that makes democracy more real and, and recognise the importance of having a say over our own destiny. You touched on it as part of that uh, diagnosis, the relatively high level of centralised revenue Power, mm-hmm. everything in New Zealand compared to compared to compared to I'd say to most of the Western yeah, world probably. Absolutely, I mean, the UK isn't altogether different, um, but there isn't much devolved power in New Zealand, and there is a there's a tension there playing out at the moment. I think on a on on a grand scheme, when you think of three waters, obviously that's had plenty of coverage. When you think about the intensification, the housing yep. debate, and the edicts that have come from on top, even even the health system, whether it's politics, all that sort of stuff. Do you think you've identified also the tension between a massive unitary council like Auckland mm-hmm. and a much smaller one, which has a much smaller kind of um, powers and mandates? Do we need to recalibrate that balance, do you think? Do you think that power needs to be devolved more in, 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 in New Zealand? And would you agree that the current government seems to be seems to be... Uh, more focused on centralising power. Well, I think, you know, Mayor Culper, I was in central government for, for 32 years and probably didn't put my mind enough to the, 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 the problem, except in one facet, and that was when I was Minister of Education way back in, you know, 1989-90. When Tomorrow's we, Schools. Well, we did Tomorrow's Schools yeah. and we devolved more power to politics. Well, that's that's now been, yeah. been, been changed in a way. But I worked with a businessman uh, with progressive enterprises, a guy called Brian Pico, now deceased. But he, he taught me about the principle of subsidiarity. Um, you can make the decisions best when you're close to where the information is held and close to where the impact of your decisions are felt. Mm. And I thought that was, a, that was a pretty good analysis. Now, here we are in the old Mount Albert Borough Council buildings. You know, uh, Mount Albert Borough Council was probably about um, 40,000, 50,000 people. Mm. It never had the resources, it never had the staffing, it never had the professional skills to take over a whole lot of wider functions. But for heaven's sake, 1.7 million Aucklanders, we, we do have those skills and we do have those resources and still the government is is really focused on, on a centralised approach. If we were in Australia... Those powers have been devolved in many senses to state government. Mm. Uh, and state government, you know, we're, we're probably closer to being a, a state government than we are um, to being a, a, a district council. A, a state government gets GST devolved to it by the government. It has the ability to raise a variety of other taxes. It does a whole lot more work and mm. in infrastructure. I think that government really does have to consider... Uh, if you want democracy to thrive at a local level, then give it the authority that would justify people saying, it's really important for me to go out and vote. You raise three waters. Um, I understand why government has introduced the three waters reform. I mean, in large parts of the country, the, the, the water quality is, is substandard and unacceptable. That's not the case in Auckland, where we've got a thing called water care that 
you know, caters for one, over one and a half million people. And yet 28% of our assets will now be under the control of somebody other than Aucklanders. We end up with, I think, 28% of the governing authority at the regional representation group. And I've spoken out not against the reform having regulation of water quality, wastewater and fresh water, uh, or against um, having amalgamation, uh, you know, 70, 67 local water authorities. That's crazy. Mm. You know? mm. but, but effectively now, we've lost control over that part of a critical role that we've played. So last year, you know, we looked at after a couple of years of drought and where we had to bring in some initial water restrictions, we said, we're going to invest a quarter of a billion dollars and we're going to produce another 100 million litres of fresh water a day. And we did it. And we did it well. And, you know, the quality of the wastewater, we are making real progress, the central interceptor that's going to cut the wastewater overflows into off the western isthmus here uh, by 80%. We've made those decisions. We've put $11 billion aside for the next 10 years in water, and now we're losing control of it? Is it because we weren't managing it well? I absolutely reject that, uh, and I don't think one size fits all across New Zealand. And housing intensification, where the National Party and the Labor Party got into bed together and said, we know what's best for you, um, and uh, and we, you know, we made, I think, really competent submissions to the select committee. Um, people around the, the committee table nodded their head and said, yeah, that makes sense. And yet they didn't change. So those decisions made centrally rather than locally, um, I don't think that is a good thing. And that's frustrating for Auckland. The unitary plan had already been passed. That yep. was an agonising process in itself. Yep. You talk about the the the, the central interceptors is a massive piece of infrastructure that smaller councils simply couldn't Accountants, because yeah. they just don't have the fundraising ability, right? Yeah. So is Auckland a special case in this argument you're making, or are you suggesting that that, that that same model could be replicated around the country? Because, and this is partly a paradox, I suppose, when you see across the board the, the, the competitiveness for these local elections, two people per available seat across yeah. the country when you spread it out, you kind of think... Do I really want to uh, vest that power to that kind yeah. of level of quality yeah. of elected of elected yeah. politicians? And, and I'm sure that's the way central government uh, thinks about it. You know, and I'm not talking about this government. I'm talking about any central government. Um, they look at the calibre of some of the people that get elected in areas which are, are pretty small, and there is a you know, a belief that a, a whole lot of New Zealand, if we look at the housing intensification, a whole lot of New Zealand hadn't catered for the need for greater intensification and dealing with some of the things behind the, the housing crisis in New Zealand. Mm. But again, as, as you rightly pointed out, we put through the unitary plan in 2016. That created, that enabled the development of uh, over 900,000 new housing units. 900,000, you know, that's enough to last you... 30, 40, 50 years. Um, so again, it it was saying, oh, we're going to throw Auckland into the same category as everybody else, uh, even though Auckland patently isn't in the same category as everybody else. We do have the resources to have a proper planning team to work through that. We showed with the unitary plan we were prepared to grasp, uh, you know, the nettle on it. And, and water, you know, God, some of the councils around New Zealand don't water meter. And if you don't water meter, people don't value what is a scarce commodity, which is water, and increasingly so. But we water meter, we fluoridate. So we'd, we'd taken the hard and the responsible decisions in all of these areas, but there was no recognition that Auckland was different and can manage its own affairs and should manage its own affairs if you want to bring democracy closer to the people.
Now, Phil Goff, I've made a terrible mistake. I haven't realised that podcasts aren't visual mediums, but I printed out a photograph here. <laughs> can you tell me what's going on in that? Can you can you paint a picture? Yeah, of well, that photograph that I've just put in front of yeah. you. Yeah, on the left hand side um, is uh, one Helen Clark, uh, probably in her early twenties, with very long hair. What year do you think we're in? Now? We're in 1974. 1974. And the guy in the middle used to be worked for Radio New Zealand, a guy called Stuart Hall, oh. uh, who's now in Canada. Um, and the guy on the right, there's a couple of others who probably won't want their names to be mentioned, <laughs> has hair almost as long as Helen Clark's, uh, yeah. pretty scruffy looking, jeans, uh, moustache. Um, uh, yeah, he might be me. <laughs> and what's going on there in that... Uh, in that image, do you know? Do you know yeah, where that's yeah, taken? That's, uh, that was a protest march against the use of injunctions against the Northern Drivers Union uh-huh. uh, that uh, that we were opposed to uh, at, at that point in time. And uh, Helen would have been a junior lecturer then, as I was, mm. uh, at, Auckland, at the Paul Studs Department at Auckland University. Mm. So we're both active. Um, actually, both she's Helen's a little older than me, but we both got motivated by by a very similar set of circumstances. This was the age of the Vietnam War, mm, which mm. fundamentally mobilised me from my very first year at university, mm. actually even before. Um, I remember protesting against Keith Holyoke outside the Auckland Town Hall in 1969. <laughs> um, uh, it was the age of when we're, uh, you know, a movement against apartheid, uh, the overthrow of the democratic government in Chile uh, by uh, Pinochet. Uh, there are a whole range of issues uh, that mobilised us, but this was a local issue as uh, as this particular protest uh, uh, was was organised around. And that that young man there, um, full of full of full of passion, full of energy, an activist, uh, an full academic, of <laughs> full of hair. Um, what would he have made of the of of, of Mayor Phil Goff after two terms? Do you think? What would he have? Some people have. I mean, I don't know if it's pejorative or not, but some people have called you a technocrat. You know, a kind of yeah. sense into or, or maybe pragmatist. What would what would but what would what would that 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 young man have made of of this this uh, mayor? I, I think there would have been a consistency there. That young man probably thought. Um, we can change the world and we can do it quickly if only the right people are in the right places. Right. And he probably didn't understand how complex the world was and that in a democracy, if you want to change the world, you've got to persuade other people to he your would vision. would hated being told that, though, wouldn't <laughs> um, I Look, I don't know. I mean, why was I in the Labour Party and not in, you know, one of the multiple fringe left groups that were often part of these protests? Because um, I had a pretty good under... Well, uh, you know, I was uh, born into a Labour family and I knew exactly why I had those values. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was always pragmatic because, you know, when you go out and you door knock, and I door knock from a very young age, you find that the world isn't just a mirror image of yourself, that there are a whole variety of people with different views. And your power to make change depends on your power to persuade those people that what you want to change the world towards... Uh, your vision is a vision that they also share. Now, there's a there's a message in that too. When you become mayor, uh, when you're a cabinet minister, you you persuade your cabinet colleagues that this is the policy you want to legislate. 
you then go to your caucus and you persuade them, and then you've got an automatic majority in the in the chamber to get your legislative measure passed. Council's a different beast. Um, you don't have that statutory power. You don't have caucuses. You don't have votes uh, uh, strictly along party lines. You've got to go out and persuade 20 other people to share your vision of what needs to be done. And this is the best way, the best solution to a very real problem that you've got in front of you. So it it's a mixture of knowing where you want to go, which is, you know, probably... Um, developed through your values and your, 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 your principles, but then finding the best practical way of getting there in a way that works, given the constraints that you have in terms of your budget uh, and your ability to carry people with you. So it's making the best of the world as you find it and, and taking the world as far as you can in the direction that you, you want to go. Now, yeah, that's pragmatism, but I believe that you know, in a whole variety of ways, I've been able to make some real progress. Climate change, you know, um, uh, the water quality targeted rate, the natural environment targeted rate. People hate rate increases, really hate them. You know, you, first thing people ask you at a public meeting, you're going to increase the rates. And, you know, I understand why they say that, because money is a scarce commodity for them. Uh, they need to be able to afford their rates. But if you want to change things, if you want to stop the, the harbours being polluted, if you want to protect the iconic kauri tree from being wiped out by kauri dieback, if you want to do things that will really reduce your emissions so that you can, you can stop uh, the worst scenario for climate change coming about, you, you've got to have the money to do that. And on each of those three issues that I've just named, I was able to persuade not only a majority of councillors that we should do that, but a majority of Aucklanders as well. Because when we do these things, we ask for submissions. Now, we, we overwhelmingly were supported by the submissions, but that's submissions are by people who are activists. What about the mainstream community out there? So we went out and we polled and we put our argument out to the public and we also persuaded a majority of people that something like the climate uh, action targeted rate was something that they would support. Yes, you should do that, they said to us. And, you know, armed with those polls, I could then go to my councillors, some of whom were very reluctant to do anything, uh, and say, look, this is what the people want you to do and we have to do it because we've looked at the evidence and it's critical that we do this. So, yeah, I, I've, I, from, from that young man in the photo, um, yeah, uh, you would expect that 40 years of experience in political life have changed the way that I've gone about doing things. Has it changed my fundamental beliefs about an inclusive society, a sustainable society, um, you know, the quest for peace and, and stability in the world? No, those are the things that still drive me. But I have become more pragmatic about how I can, how I can achieve those things and you would expect that after 15 years as a cabinet minister and six years as a mayor. You um, mentioned teaching at Auckland University, and a few years before that, you will have completed your thesis, which you, which you also mentioned a moment ago, and doing the interlines and so yeah. on. Uh, 488 pages, I believe, <laughs> yeah. on the relationship between the Labour Party and the unions. Yeah, which is uh, what a grounding. Yeah. What well, was that? What, what did you have an argument? I mean, did it, did it have a have a powerful thesis? Yeah. Look, uh, it, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of stories about that thesis. Uh, one, I was still writing it when that photo was taken. Oh, I see. Because I was teaching full time, I was uh, working full time as uh, chair of Young Labour, um, and uh, I was meant to be writing a thesis. Mm. And uh, it was it was just under 500 pages. And when I gave it to my supervisor, Professor Bob Chapman, he said. 
you realise I would have given you a first if you had just done the first chapter. <laughs> Bugger. <laughs> a, li- a life ahead of you in yeah. long reports. Please <laughs> yeah. give us the executive summary. Yeah, and uh, the good thing about it was that my wife typed it up on the latest technology, which was a golf ball typewriter in triplicate and car- carbonated paper. Mm. And after that, I mean, she wasn't my wife at that point. She was my girlfriend. I thought, well... Uh, a, a woman that'll do that for you, yeah, you you, you ought to marry her. <laughs> so, uh, um, but yeah, look, uh, it it was a, it, it was an interesting exercise, the hardest exercise I did in university. Papers were pretty straightforward. You you know you you studied up the topics and you you answered the the questions and the the pressure of the exam room. But writing a thesis where you had to analyse and collect the material together, I think it was an important part of my learning. But I still wake up sometimes in a cold sweat thinking, shit, I haven't finished my thesis yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so a thesis on Labour and the trade unions. And then you went into Parliament. I think you got into Parliament the same year as Helen Clark, who's also in that. Yeah, so yeah both in 81. 81. And one, a neighbouring one, in, one in Roscoe, one in Mount yeah, Albert. Yeah, neighbouring electorates, yeah. Um, and then... Uh, up, you, you give a maiden speech, you do the necessary invocations of Michael Joseph Savage and so on, and then you find yourself a very young uh, cabinet minister in 84, is that right? Yeah, yeah, June uh, or July 84, 31 years old. Um, well, just as well I knew everything then. I've, yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten a lot since I was 34. And that, was, and that gave you a literal front row seat at an incredible episode, an extraordinary yeah. episode in New Zealand politics, right? It, I mean, it, t- it, tell us some of the characters that were around that cabinet yeah, table. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was an extraordinary government to be part of. And it, um, I, the thing I remember, even before we were sworn in, we were called together in our old caucus room in the uh, old building in Parliament to get a briefing just after the election. And mm. it was um, Bernie Galvin, Secretary of Treasury, Rod Dean, uh, Governor of the Reserve Bank, and they literally outlined to us what the state of the New Zealand economy was. Yep. And, you know, I, look, it's become, it's become a time-honoured thing to say, oh, the, we've opened the books and it's much worse than yep. we thought. That's why we've got the Public Finance Act now and you, you actually have to open the books before an election. But it was literally like that. It was uh, a great big fright after that I, snap election. I, I, yeah, I thought we, we will be a one, one-term government. Yep. This, this is such a mess. How the hell are we going to... Try to realise what we, you know, you, you go into a campaign with your dream of what you can do when you're in government. And and you're giving all this preamble by way of we had no choice but oh, to it, do what we did? Is that well, what you, no, not entirely. I mean, you always have choices. Yeah. And um, yeah, I know there is no alternative. Tina was the, the phrase of the day. Mm. We had a very young cabinet. Um, you know, I was the youngest member of it, but the cabinet as a whole, I think the average age was 37. Yep. David Longy David was, Long was probably 40, 41, yeah. 42. Yeah. Uh, Roger Douglas a bit older. And a lot of what we did at that time wasn't, you know, was was radical for New Zealand in the sense, what did Longy used to use the phrase, we were, uh, you know, we were, we were being, this country was being run like a Polish shipyard. Mm. And it, it was very evocative. I'd, I'd studied Eastern European and command uh, economies uh, at university and taught a bit in them. And we were like that. You know, we had, we had wage control, rent control, price control. Um, we had big tariffs. We didn't um, open ourselves up to trade. We had, my dad was a railway tradesman. You know, that was the tradition I grew up in and, and mm. both of his brothers uh, or two out of the three of his brothers. And, you know, we had the, the railway workshops that employed 
20,000 people. Um, and one of the people there was uh, actually Leanne Delzell's uh, late husband. And he said, Phil, I remember going along to work and at best we would have one day of actual work in a, in, a, in a 40 hour week. So eight hours out of the 40, the rest of the time we sat around. Well, you can't run an economy like that. You can't run the railways like that. Uh, so the changes that we made were, were kind of, many of those changes were rational and they were the right things to do. We floated the dollar, we opened ourselves up to international trade. Nobody today in mainstream politics, um, or even, you know, even on some of the fringe of the politics would say, that was the wrong thing to do. Um, you know, we floated the dollar because it was costing us a fortune, uh, trying to sustain a dollar at a, at a level that you couldn't sustain. You know, literally hundreds of millions of dollars Muldoon lost in, in trying to do that. So many of those changes are mainstream, but they were tough at the time. They were tough on farmers. They were tough on workers that worked in things like the car industry. You know, I remember, I don't know if it was after your time probably, but buying my first car and, you know, the price that you paid for a beaten up old piece of junk was huge because, um, you know, we, we paid for cars to be assembled in, in New Zealand and it, it cost about a third more to assemble them in New Zealand than to import them built up. So the second biggest purchase of a working person's life was made that much more expensive. So a lot of those changes, they were hard, but they, they, they were necessary. Some of the changes um, went too far. And some of what then Roger Douglas wanted to do uh, after 87 mm. went far too far. And I found, you know, I'd, I'd been a, a, a strong supporter of uh, the fundamental changes that Roger was making. Um, but he, he, he lost me, uh, you know, with uh, some of the things that he... he in, in some ways, it was he, he, he wasn't... He's, he's not a reactionary. He's a rad, he was a radical. But the, the sort of changes, I just couldn't see how they would work. You know, having a, a flat tax, how do you have a flat tax and still in, uh, have, achieve equity in society? And, you know, from being a, a very successful government in the first three years, we then had that terrible disunity between David Longy, Roger Douglas, the caucus was split down the middle. And fundamentally, if, if, you, if you go into an election disunited like that, how could you expect the public ever to have confidence in you? And they didn't, and we got thrown out. Was it because Douglas was sort of doctrinaire and as ideological? Is that what happened? I mean, you talked about, you talked before mm. about as mayor and having yeah. to having to find agreement, talk to people who aren't necessarily uh, ideologically on the same yeah. track as you. And of course, in those days, mm. uh, this was pre-MMP. So there was no. It was it was it was it was cabinet role, yeah, really, yeah. right? As Jeffrey Palmer said, we were the fastest lawmakers in the West, right. and he was a constitutional lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Look, I don't think Douglas started off ideological, uh, and I and I, frankly, I don't think Labor um, in the seventies knew exactly where they wanted to take the country economically, which is why Roger Douglas had such an influence because he had, through the 70s, he'd, he in, in the early 1970s as a cabinet minister, and he was minister of housing, so he treated me pretty well as mm. minister of housing. I, I built a lot of state houses in that, that, uh, that, that uh, fourth Labour government. But he, he moved, and then I think uh, people, you know, business roundtable, et cetera, got in his ear, and he took, he took the policy changes, I think, too far and worked on the basis of you're going to make change, you do it quickly, and people will finally catch up with you, but by that time you've done it. Yeah, 
might might have been right, but it's 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 a little inconsistent with democracy um, if you're just doing things by being able to to ram them through. So I think you know where we ended up uh, under the next Labor government uh, under Helen Clark's uh, prime ministership was a, a far more centrist position and traditional position for the Labor Party to be in. We still made changes, but um, they we we approached it in, in, in a different way and. That, that was a government that I think was a lot more mainstream, but then we weren't dealing with the crises that um, the, the Longy government found itself in, you know, caused by the, the snap election. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Hey, you talked about the not getting to give a valedictory because you, you lost your seat. And was it 1990 you lost yeah. your seat? And then you had what I've heard you describe as a sabbatical. Yeah. So you did it. And did you... Did you was it a was it was that a was that a closely run decision whether or not to go again is the first part of the question and the second part of the question is if you hadn't what might have what what might have that the, those next decades been filled with would it have been academia or something else yeah um, well first of all I mean after six really hard years in government and yep. you know I ended up with the education portfolio and a massive reform. Um, it was you were the first education minister to introduce fees. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I tell you what, if the students today had the chance to go back to the allowances and fees system that I'd introduced, they would have grasped it with both hands. Uh, Lockwood Smith said, uh, no, uh, we're going to reverse uh, the fees, and if I don't do that, I'm going to resign. Well, of course, he did neither. Um, he, he increased them uh, under the Richardson-Bolger uh, 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 government. Um, look, for a start off, um, it was bloody good to get my life back, to tell you the truth. I mean, I'd worked every hour I had. Um, we, when, I, when I went out of office, I um, bought a small block of land. Um, I love living in the countryside. I love doing farm work, uh, you know, hard physical work. Um, I really enjoyed the first year, I, and I, I got a job um, as a senior lecturer at Auckland, uh, what's now Auckland University of Technology, mm. uh, Bachelor of Communication Studies. Um, and and it was good. Uh, you know, I was, I was, I had my life back. Uh, I then got won a scholarship to go to Oxford University, which was a great experience in uh, in 1992. And I got back to New Zealand, and Oxford partly convinced me that I didn't want to be an academic. I'd spent six years as a cabinet minister, where I wanted to learn to apply that learning to how I could make the world, the community, society a better place. And Oxford was a very much a, you know, very academic university. And I found people weren't, in, you know, weren't interested in how you'd apply that. They were interested mm. in the knowledge. Mm. And so, you know, that was, I I, I still wanted to make it's a difference. It's interesting, isn't it? Like, because yeah. the university is meant to be this kind of free space of open ideas, but you were gagging to talk more I wanted practicality. To, yeah, yeah. And, and I've always said about our New Zealand universities, two 
too often the universities haven't been as intimately involved in helping change society as they want to be. In the United States, people move between the private sector, academia, and the government sector just as a, a normal course of events because, yeah. you know, president will bring his cabinet in. They're not elected. They're brought in from top areas of industry, top areas of academia. And I always thought that um, our universities undersold themselves in terms of, you know, what they could do to produce change. But I, I came back in early 93 and I found that I was yelling at the radio during during morning report <laughs> and my wife looked at me sadly and she said, you're going to go back into politics, aren't you? And I, I felt that I had unfinished business. So I I also I kind of, I got beaten by a guy in, in 1990 um, that I shouldn't have been beaten by. And Who was that? A guy called Gilbert Miles. He okay. was famous at the time. He went through about three political parties. Um, mm. Uh, you once also beat Wayne Mapp for the candidacy for the yeah, Labour yeah, Party yeah. going back a bit further, yeah. talking about people jumping parties. Yeah, yeah. Wayne uh, Wayne in those days was uh, Labour, and uh, I think I had 23 candidates up against me in the Mount Roskill selection, wow. including George Hawkins and, and a whole lot of others. And here was I, this young uh, young guy that um, people thought, Roskill, fairly conservative seat. Ah, we wouldn't take that risk. Um but anyway, um, so I, I did go back and I did win. I won my seat back and I held my seat thereafter. And so we were called retreads. You know, <laughs> you'd been in Parliament, oh, yeah. you'd lost your seat and you were, you were back again. Um, and, and you I, got a second go at it, got a second go yeah, at it. Yeah, being and, a cabinet minister, had a bunch of different portfolios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did another nine, nine years in cabinet, uh, six years in the first government and then nine years in the second. I started off with foreign affairs and justice, two really big portfolios. Yeah. Uh, loved both of them. I think I've made a real difference in both of them um, and uh, uh, then went on and uh, did trade and defence and a few other things as well. And, uh, yeah, I, I found that really satisfying. But in finding it satisfying, I mean, I love the idea of you've got, you go into a portfolio, you've got these challenges to meet, you collect together information, you get the best advice you can from your officers, you talk to your party people, you talk to experts in the field, and you apply that. All of that was good, but it made you a really bad opposition leader because I I wanted to be constructive and positive and how you could solve problems, not about sitting on the sidelines, you know, um, saying things that you didn't actually believe in, but that you could use to... Um, you feel like you were faking it a bit when I, you well, became I, opposition leader. I, well, I, no, I, I didn't fake it, and that, <laughs> that might have been the problem. Oh, you weren't faking it uh, enough. Um, well, I did, I did things that I believed in. I mean, I actually believed that we needed a capital gains tax, and oh, that yeah, was... Well, that was and that didn't go well, did it? Um, no, but, but, I think I, but I think I was right. right and, well. and bugger it all, I'd rather be right... And and then yeah. pay the price for well okay people weren't ready for that then to say uh, actually I don't believe in that when when I actually do um, and I you know so I, I don't I don't but then I don't but then those. you also you also exalt the idea of of, of, of a pragmatic politics of yep. doing what you need to do and that's yep. exactly what Jacinda yeah. Ardern did isn't it she did the old the same thing that 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 with National Super is like we're not going to deal with yeah. that one and I, not I had, on my watch I had different policies on both of those areas I think that the super age should have gone up over time to uh, to sixty seven here am I. You know, fully employed at sixty nine, uh, because you know, supposedly the sixties are uh, what used to, you know, we used to regard as the fifties. You live longer, yeah. uh, you, you contribute. Um, you know, my my fundamental belief is I might have paid my share of tax. I probably paid, uh, you know, paid every dollar I, I I ever needed to pay in tax. Uh, uh, but 
I, I, you know, I'm not a priority for, um, uh, for, for being paid uh, national super in my but mind. But coming back to the politics of it, you, the, the, the Goff doctrine, the, the universal Goff theory of everything that yeah. you described earlier was it's all very well having those views if you yeah. can't, if you yeah. can't affect them, if yeah. you can't, okay. if you can't win. So that, that, that's true. Um, but what I, <laughs> what I'd probably figured out is when you've been in government for nine years and then you go into opposition, your chances, there has never been a Labour government elected hmm. uh, in the first election after they've been defeated for office. So I knew it was an uphill battle. Um, I knew, oh, look, if I was really pragmatic, I would have said, no, <laughs> uh, uh, poison chalice, um, I don't want to be uh, I don't want to be leader of the opposition, hmm. let somebody else have a go. Uh, I didn't think that. Um, my cabinet... Um, that I was part of uh, unanimously said you're, you're the person that should run um, and we're relying on you to do that and I did it. Um, I, so you're saying you were reluctant, reluctant I, I, Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't grasp uh, a role. I mean, it was a, it was a huge privilege actually to be leader of the Labour Party, mm. so I like that. Um, the role of leader of the opposition, I, I, apart from maybe one or two exceptions, I don't think there's anyone that's performed that role that says that it's not the worst job in Parliament. Well, in one sense, Jacinda Ardern timed it perfectly. You just do it for seven seven weeks. Yeah. When we're, 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 and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, not even not even being tongue-in-cheek on this, because yeah. because everybody expects you to, to do nothing but debate and, and, yeah. and some version of attack, whereas, uh, you know, if you have to do it for longer, it might not suit a sensibility. Maybe it didn't suit your sensibility. In a way, I don't think it particularly suits Christopher Luxon. I can yeah. feel him sometimes kind of, it looks like he's trying to fire up in question yeah. time, and, and I wonder whether actually he's better suited to a ministerial or even prime ministerial role than an opposition leader. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think that's a perfectly sound analysis. Um, yeah, I think Jacinda is the timing, and, and she was a reluctant um, leader of the opposition too. I mean, she hadn't actively sought that, genuinely hadn't, Mm. Um, and wow, um, you know, seven weeks that changed the world. Um, what a, what a performance she put on! Um, absolutely superb. I got huge respect for her communication skills and for her as a person. Uh, John Key had done pretty much the same thing. He didn't have a long time in in opposition. Um, it is a really tough job, and you, you know, I mean, I think of somebody like Muldoon, very successful leader of the opposition. He mm. he beat the Labor government, the third Labor government after one term. But what did he beat it on? Things like demolishing the New Zealand super scheme, which would have revolutionised the way that we could have invested in our own country. Worst thing that any politician ever did in New Zealand. But it was very popular at the time. He said, I'll give you all your savings back. You know, so here was a, 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 a handout, you know, sometimes into thousands of dollars, uh, short-term thinking, and absolutely ruthless, those dancing Cossacks. Mm. I mean, we look at that and we ridicule it today, but it hugely effective at the time. Mm. But did that make him a good leader for New Zealand? No, I think it made him one of the worst leaders that this country's ever had. That 2011 campaign uh, where you were the leader of the Labour Party, there was that moment which, I'm sorry, but people bring it up, the show me the money yeah, yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, um, good, good line from Key. A, a, a good yeah. line from Key. How did that, how did that, and the, and the, that was a, that was, well, that was about capital gains tax, right? And that was you, it was about tax policy. It, it, yeah, yeah, he, and, was, he and, was doing the thing that governments um, quite properly always do. Well, you've got all these policies, how are you going to pay for them, you know, and, uh, uh, and that's that's always the vulnerability of somebody in opposition. Um, I look back, actually, just because I'm um, I'm packing up my office at the moment and mm. stuff that I'd uh, brought up with me from Parliament. I mean, I 
you know, I I think that by and large I ran as maybe not as good as a campaign as I could have, but a, a, a pretty good campaign. And that you know, I, I lifted, I doubled my ratings in the in the poll at the time during the course of the campaign. Mm. But um, you know, and we focused very much on um, the opposition I had to privatising the hydro dams, uh, and I stand by that. I don't think they should have been privatised. They're mm. a, they're a license to print money and they're strategic assets. Um, but you know, I I wasn't a I wasn't going to beat uh, Key after one term in opposition and one term in government for him. But it also, he was um, he was a very smart politician. You know, if you give him uh, his dues, I mean, I I don't think he used his political capital to advance New Zealand as he might have. Um, but he uh, he was a, in his own right a very good communicator. I went back and watched those last um, debates between Helen Clark and John Key. Mm. And we you mean you did that during the campaign? I, I did that during the, the campaign. Yeah, yeah. What could I learn from it? Yeah. And you know, I remember back in two thousand and eight, we knew the calibre that Helen Clark was as a Prime Minister, proven skills, ability, hard work, etc. Uh, but then you had this uh, fresh-faced uh, John Key coming in, much lighter. You know, he turned what Helen Clark's strengths were, her gravitas, into a weakness. You know, we're sick of this, this mm. government that uh, knows best for us. Um, so so he, uh, he, was a, he was a smart politician. Um, and, but, but again, I'd say, yeah, but John... How did you how did you change New Zealand for the better? You know what are the, you know the, the the Clark government. We could look at things like the Bourdin, Bourdin the, the Kiwi Saver, and uh, and and a, and a range of different programs did the right thing in terms of not getting involved in the war in Iraq. Um, you know when you look back on it, you say, well, okay, it's, it's not just about me and the fact that it's nice to be a cabinet minister, but what difference was I able to make for the country? And, you know, why am I Labour? Because I think Labour governments always do try to make a difference for the country in a, in a positive sense, and that's what motivates them and drives them, uh, rather than simply the quest for power and the, the, the desire to maintain, you know, the quote-unquote natural leaders of the country and the economy. Um, you know, I, I'm a, a, a change person. I want to see how we can change things for the better. I'm not a status quo person. And given that... Given that mindset, when those seven weeks happened and Jacinda Ardern, who had yeah. worked for you in your electorate office, yeah. was it? Uh, no, no, my, my, when I was Minister of Finance, I gave her a oh, first, first job out of uh, Waikato University. Um, she, she was a very clever young woman then. Um, and impossible to say these things with retrospect, but do you think, oh, this is, a, this is, this is somebody no, special? No, no, I, 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 well, I, I thought she was... Just I, a staffer. I, no, 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 I, I thought she was special. Uh, I didn't realise how special she was and oh, the yeah. abilities that she had. And then, so, but when that, when that extraordinary few weeks happened, there must have been at least part of you that thought, damn it, I could have been part of that, whether or not, not even, yeah. even, just, even just along for the ride. Yeah, look, I, um, you know... The portfolios I really enjoyed, like um, foreign affairs and the trade portfolio, mm. would love to have had the chance to do that again. Um, but I've made my decision. I, I, I've said before on in the course of this interview, I, I don't like being in opposition. I like to be able to um, tackle problems and find solutions to problems. And the mayoralty was one way that I could do that. Um, you know, um, equally tough in, in many ways, mm. given the, the scale of the, the challenges that Auckland faced. But far better to be constructive and to take hard decisions and feel that you can make a difference than sit on the sidelines and um, simply just hold the government to account and, um, and and to complain about what the government is doing. So I'd had it, I'd, 
I'd been in Parliament for 32 years. Mm. That, that was a pretty, that's longer than most. Mm. And I thought, look, um, I've probably contributed as much as I can. So it was refreshing to come into the mayoralty and I, I have no regrets for, for making that that decision. And so over the course of all that time, you have that rare overview, right, uh, where you can sort of see maybe 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 today more than more than most days during it how things might have changed there and i'm i'm interested how has politics changed in terms maybe tonally maybe i, I was i was sort of struck by some of the things that grant robertson said recently about how this coming election He's not sure whether they will be able to do the shopping mall walkabouts. Did you did you see that yeah, in terms yeah. of some of the and some of the stuff has um, grown over time? You mentioned the Cossacks and the oppositionalism back in the day, so we should be careful not to you know. In some ways, there's no new thing under the sun, but there is. It seems to me a slightly changed level of toxicity, a slightly changed level of venom, and this goes at. At, at, at this is this is towards politicians of all stripes. This yeah. is not um, exclusive. Yeah, to no, I think that's right. Look, over the course of my career, I've had a number of death threats. I had one this week, actually. Um, a guy came in, he's obviously mentally in ill. In person. Um, into the council office right. and saying that he wanted to kill the mayor and the, the councillors and... You know, so we did the usual thing and passed it on to the uh, uh, to the police. Um, and you know, you feel sorry for the guy. He was um, he was obviously mentally ill. Um, but it, yeah, it, it it is. I think the bitterness and the vitriol has increased. Uh, and I put that down to a couple of things. I think social media. Very rarely do I find in person, and I get around to crowds all the time. You know. Um, very rarely do I get abused in person, almost yeah. almost never. But if I look on if I look on my Facebook site and I just hear, I see some of the things that people are saying, and I think, God, you 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 armchair warrior, you how how courageous to to say these things from the anonymity of uh, your, 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 a, a Facebook posting. But social media has meant that people are emboldened to do and say things that you wouldn't normally face to face to a, a another human being. And you know, before we did this interview, we touched on you know what was what was happening with um, people used to rely on the same media source. You know, but at six o'clock you'd watch TV One, and that's where the news came from. And you know, when they had a monopoly, it was overwhelmingly the, the you know the the key source of um, information. Now people can. Uh, go to di- different aspects of, um, uh, of of social media. They they are reinforced by the messages that they have that um, uh, appeal to their own prejudices. In the United States, if you're right wing, you won't watch CNN. You'll watch Fox, and that'll reinforce your prejudice. And in a funny way, not a funny way, and a sad way, really, you divide the community. It becomes much more them and us. And I grew up in a totally different world. As a baby boomer, you know, my dad is a, a, a railway uh, worker, came back from the war, they'd um, been a, a, a pilot with the RNZAF, and the people that I grew up with that were his friends came from a whole cross-section of society, you know, every walk of life, because they were all on the same flight wing that he was on. And they came back to New Zealand and they said, look, we are all equal as New Zealanders. We'd all been out there. We'd put ourselves at risk. Uh, we'd, you know, we'd seen others sacrificed for, for New Zealand, and we want to come back and we make want to make life better for everybody. We're one country, you know, uh, and we've we've lost a lot of that. Um, we've become, in some ways, far more 
selfish and, and self-centred. You know, we, we're inclined to say, and the lock, I don't doubt the lockdown was hard for a hell of a lot of people, actually, and probably had a psychological impact. People lost their jobs. People, for the first time in their lives, were confined to their homes. It was like being on home detention. But if we thought back, uh, you know, two generations to my parents' generation, what they went through, the Great Depression, the war, you know, I've, my grandmother, God bless her, um, she lost her brother in the First World War. She lost a younger son in the Second World War. Her husband was imprisoned and uh, as a prisoner of war in the First World War, gas died in the middle of the Great Depression. And I think of, you know, looking at it from my own perspective, what have I got to grizzle about? You know, I've grown up in this land of opportunity, you know, easier for some than for others. I didn't grow up in a wealthy household. I grew up in a society that gave me opportunity. And that's what we've really got to get back to, you know. How we want to change New Zealand, we want to change it to give every kid the same chance to to make the the, the most of their lives and, and to be able to contribute what they're capable of contributing. And I think our society has become narrower than that, where people, you know, that are earning big money, you know, People that think that uh, it's it's okay. I mean, I I, I'm, I deserve you know three, four, five million dollars in salary a year. Really? Do you really deserve that? Whoa! You must be a you must you must be a, an Einstein to to deserve that. And and we don't. And you know why was it so important to give a living wage to councillors? Because we wanted to lift the people at the bottom up. Um, and 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 we've been pretty pretty careful about lifting the salaries at the top. In fact, the chief executive now is being paid less than the chief executive was six years ago. He's still applying himself, giving the best of himself, um, and, and doesn't resent that. But it is creating, to go back to an earlier, you know, our society, we want our society to be a society of opportunity and inclusion, not one of division and selfishly looking after your own interests at the expense of somebody else. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that you exempt people from individual responsibility. There is an element of individual responsibility. But if you're a kid that grows up uh, as um, a, a fetal alcohol kid, your life is screwed right from the start because of the nature of the way that your mum lived and probably the environment that she came from. And, you know, I'd like to see a whole lot more unity in our society as we jointly tackle real problems that aren't don't have a labour solution or a national solution, but they have a pragmatic solution that we need to come around together on. That sounds incredibly idealistic, um, but I think it's true. Well, I think this, this photo, I'm looking at the photo again now, I'm thinking that guy's, his, his, his he, ears are pricking up. Yeah, he, he's, he's, he's he sound like you're just getting cracking. <laughs> it's not time to retire. Yeah, Phil yeah, well, I'm probably not going to retire, but um, I'm going to retire what, what, from... What do you think, I, 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 what do you think you might do? I'm, I'm wondering if you've got a favourite restaurant in London. <laughs> um, look, I'd, I, I think um, I, it's time for me to get out of public life. I'm, you know, as I've said several times in this interview, I'm a baby boomer. I've got an office um, uh, of people of a totally different generation, and they've been really helpful to me in making sure I'm, I'm still relevant to the uh, 21st century. But I think it's time for somebody younger to take over that. But I still have... I hope some skills and some experience that I can contribute back to the country. And you were just inveighing against um, the vulgarity of people who earn too much money. So would yeah. you like to take an opportunity to denounce Liz Truss and her reason? <laughs> uh, diplomatically, uh, how, how would I Sorry, put that? Diplomatically. I, um, uh, I would say that I, did, I, I was absolutely astounded by the decision that the government then took and has since reversed it was never going to fly. It was never right. Um, and, uh, you know, the Conservative Party recognised that for itself. But, um, 
yeah, you just wonder how you arrived at a, a position like that. I mean, basic economics tells you that you don't borrow to pay for tax cuts for people who are already very highly paid. And uh, you don't do it in a way that damages the value of the pound and uh, and forces interest rates higher than they would otherwise have gone. Very quickly before I let you go, 14 campaigns, is that right? Did yeah, I read that somewhere? 14 election campaigns. Do you have a favourite and a least favourite? Is there a, do you, do you, oh. do you, do you have a, do you do, do you rank them from one to 14? Yeah, when you... um, very, I mean, the mayoralty was an election in my own right rather than as a, a member or a leader of yeah. a, a party. So, you know, to have got... Um, uh, overwhelming majorities both times for the mayoralty. That gave me a mandate. Uh, and thank you, Aucklanders, for the privilege that that, that bestowed on me. Um, the most exciting one, I think, though, would have been um, 1984, uh, the mm. SNAP selection. And I remember gathering uh, with a group of other uh, MPs in Longy's office on, on that night in Parliament, and we knew we were going to win. And likewise, in, um, <coughs> excuse me, in, um, in 1999... And it's the excitement of going from, you've worked in opposition, you've tried to build up your alternative policies, you've been in opposition for a while, not so long for me in, in terms of 1984, I'd only been two and a half years in opposition, uh, but more so in 1999, and the anticipation that finally you're going to be able to do something to put um, your plans, your, your values, your, your dreams into effect. Um, that's, that's always... Um, uh, a hell of an exciting time. And the least favourite, I'm going to guess it's probably a toss-up between 1990 and 2011. Yeah, uh, both both were really tough elections. 1990, um, you know when you go out in the streets in your electorate, um, when people don't look in your eye, that, right. that, that you're probably not going to win your electorate. Um, and, and in 2011, you know, I mean, uh, I don't think, I don't think that that was an election that we were ever going to win, uh, but you feel a hell of a lot of responsibility on you when you're leader of your party and you can't lead your party to a, to a victory, which is why, you know, um, the day after that, I said uh, I was stepping down as leader of the opposition. Uh, give somebody else a, a, a crack at it. Last thing, there have been quite a few books coming out lately, political books. Yeah. Um, maybe your thesis isn't finished. Maybe there's a 488-page <laughs> tome Phil Goffman, do you think? I mean, seriously, do you think this is something you might do? There's a, there's a whole lot of things, and I just think of some of the anecdotes and the, the experiences that I had, particularly as foreign minister. You know, um, uh, um, I think of the tsunami up in uh, in, in uh, Indonesia and Thailand, where I was up on the ground and you know in a in a, a temple that had been turned into a mosque for three thousand bodies that had mm. been lying in the sun, and I mean, awful things. I think of. Timor Leste, where I was an observer, um, an international observer for their referendum about independence, and left as the militias were starting to ransack the place, and uh, uh, then went back as foreign minister several weeks later. There are a lot of things that I'd like to talk about the the role that New Zealand has played in the world, and you know, one that I think we can be really proud of, uh, Timor Leste being one of those. But the role that we've played as a good international citizen, um, I'd love to sometime have the time to focus on that. I, I'm not going to be, I wouldn't do a, you know, nobody would read a 400 or a 500 page, nobody probably ever read my thesis. Um, <laughs> but, but doing something where you can talk about some of the issues, you know, from uh, a bird's eye view that you have as foreign minister, that would appeal to me to do sometime. The question is, um, you need, I, I'd need to be retired uh, from 
an active career in order to, to start mm. doing that. And whether I'll have the energy and the discipline to do it, uh, time will tell. But it, it would be good to write some of those things up that may be of interest to people. You can get onto that after you have typed up whatever manuscripts your wife would like done for you <laughs> by way of uh, payback. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, she keeps saying, these could be the best years of your life. You're, you're, um, you're, you could be in retirement. We could be travelling widely. We could be enjoying life. We could be spending time with our grandparents kids. Uh, you could be out fishing or hunting or drinking red wine. Why the hell do you want to keep working? And uh, then she knows the answer to that. She says, uh, you need a challenge. It makes you easier to live with. <laughs> Unfortunately, she said that to the media, which uh, I'm forever grateful for, but she wasn't wrong. Well, thank you to you. Thank you to you, uh, Phil Goff, for coming in and, and sharing all those experiences. Much appreciated. Thanks, Toby. It's been a real pleasure. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.